0: Hi, I'm Vivian Berkovich, and you're listening to the State of Tel Aviv and Beyond podcast. Our guests today are Professor Neil Robachevsky and Dov Ziegler, who recently published a very important and timely book, Israel's Declaration of Independence. In this book, they analyze what happened during the three critical weeks leading up to the moment when Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion declared the independence of the State of Israel to the world. May 14, 1948. It's a story replete with brass-knuckled political clashes, the imminent threat of invasion by hostile Arab countries, and, of course, the desperate need of the fledgling Jewish state for weapons. The authors enliven this critical moment in history with brilliant storytelling and insight. Stay with us. This is the State of Tel Aviv and Beyond, the podcast that brings you the straight-up, unfiltered story. What's really going down in Israel? Politics, economics, religion and state, lots of conflict. I'm your host, Vivian Berkovich, former Canadian ambassador to Israel. We're on the street with the folks who live here and have skin in the game. Yalla, let's dive in. Tonight at sundown, Independence Day celebrations begin in Israel and continue throughout the day tomorrow. For whatever reason, Israelis love to barbecue on open charcoal grills on Yom Haatzmaut, known as Independence Day in English, and neighborhood and national parks are teeming with large groups of family and friends just spending the day kicking back, relaxing, and eating. This 75th anniversary of the founding of the state is, of course, an incredible achievement, but it also falls in the midst of an unprecedented domestic crisis, a crisis that is rooted in so many of the compromises and quick decisions made at the time of independence. We open our podcast with an original recording of the singing of Hatikvah, the Hope, the national anthem of the soon-to-be-declared state. Shortly after 4 p.m. on Monday, May 14, 1948, the leadership of the Yishuv, representing the Jewish settlers in Mandatory Palestine, assembled in a nondescript room in Tel Aviv to witness this momentous occasion, the declaration of the creation of the State of Israel. And they opened this gathering by singing Hatikvah. This original recording was made inside the room and broadcast live on Voice of Israel radio to the tens of thousands of Israelis listening outside on the streets and around the world. As ah, David Ben-Gurion delivered the declaration, establishing the modern state of Israel, which was committed to the values of liberal democracy, to be Jewish in character, and an equal among the family of nations, an independent, sovereign country. Israel is born in controversy, of controversy, and remains mired in controversy. Seventy-five years on, this country is experiencing what is the most severe domestic crisis in its short existence, and which so many describe as being the gravest danger since the War of Independence of 1948. In 2023, however, the crisis is within, among and between warring tribes and factions of society. State of Tel Aviv has covered this roiling crisis, now in its fourth month, extensively, And I invite you to have a look at our online archives of podcasts and written work dealing with these issues. But today, we are focusing on the Declaration of Independence, the wording, the intentions of the framers and drafters, and what, if any, guidance we may extract from that time to assist us in navigating this very fraught time. The State of Israel began in the shadow of perhaps the greatest assault ever on Jewish existence. The Nazi-German-inspired Holocaust, intended to annihilate every last Jew in Europe. It began in desperation and with determination. And above all, it, the founding of the State of Israel, was fueled by an understanding of the power of identity, history, and justice. Professor Neil Rogachevsky teaches at Yeshiva University in New York and co-authored this superb work titled Israel's Declaration of Independence, the history and political theory of the nation's founding moment with his close friend of more than 30 years, Dov Ziegler, whose day job is in the financial sector. All three of us, me, Neil and Dov, are from Toronto and lived a stone's throw from one another and, of course, Bathurst Street. For anyone who has ever visited that city, you'll understand that from north to south, Bathurst is the spinal cord of the Jewish community of approximately 225,000 in Toronto. That's right. Fun fact. Canada is home to the fourth largest Jewish community in the world, after Israel, the United States and France. I know, eh? Neil Rogachevsky and Dov Ziegler. So wonderful to have you joining us on State of Tel Aviv to discuss your fabulous new book, Israel's Declaration of Independence, which came out, went two weeks ago, a month ago?
1: Exactly. Crazy. And a half weeks ago.
0: Okay. Yes. I just think you guys must have a direct line to someone, and I want to know who, because your timing is beyond brilliant.
1: It's an absolute pleasure to be to be speaking to you today, Vivian. It's just an absolutely a great time to be talking about this important subject. And more, most of all, we're, we're both close followers of state of TLV and the extraordinary work that, that you guys do on the show. So it's just a pleasure to be talking to you.
0: Well, thank you, Dove. I appreciate that. And I'm that. especially
2: happy to be doing an all-Canadian Zio podcast.
0: Right? Are yeah. we, like, taking over or what? It's amazing. I'm so proud of that, too. Okay, guys. Let's get serious now. Time to focus on the Declaration of Independence for the State of Israel. Israel's Independence Day is coming. We start the celebrations on Tuesday night, as you know, and the big day is Wednesday. And you look at the period really proximate to the actual Declaration of the Independence on May 14, 1948, and kind of what led up to it in terms of political argument, drafting of the Declaration, discussing everything. And it really was concentrated over a three-week period. Is that correct?
1: Exactly. It's it's a book about ideas, but it's also a book about a period of time. It's about the three and a half weeks before May 14th, 1948, and what was in the ether and what was in the minds of the founders of Israel.
0: Thanks for tuning in to the State of Tel Aviv and Beyond podcast. If you enjoy our work, please rate us. Review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, our Substack page, which is stateoftelaviv.com. That's stateoftelaviv, all one word, com. Whatever works. Your thumbs up makes a huge difference. For real. Thank you so much for your support. Now, back to the podcast.
1: So in, throughout the first 30 years or so after Israel's Declaration of Independence had been written, there hadn't been a great deal, or even very much, Scholarship of it. There had been some commemoration of it at the Independence Hall, but but that was it. And very, to the degree that there had been much writing about it, it had been really just one draft of of the Declaration of Independence that had been written by a Supreme Court judge, C. Berenson, that that existed. And amazingly, a scholar in the 1990s and early 2000s uncovered the earliest drafts of the Declaration of Independence that had been alluded to in 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 some legal scholarship, but but that was it. And it turned out that it was a draft of the Declaration of Independence of Israel written in English on the basis of the American Declaration of Independence on the inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness of the citizens and protecting those rights. That was the first draft of the Declaration of Independence. And it's an extraordinary... And it's an extraordinary, extraordinary document because it, 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 it's based on ideas, and yet it sees the, the foundation of the state as being based on a, a merger of liberal ideas on the one hand and the idea of the Jewish people and the Jewish state and, and, Jewish, and, and, and the continuation of the Jewish story on the other.
0: In this period immediately before the Declaration, The Yishuv was under indescribable pressure. New immigrants, mostly survivors of the Holocaust, continued to enter mandatory Palestine. Resources of all kinds were scarce. The withdrawal of virtually all military forces was slated for May 15, 1948, and it was a foregone conclusion that the armies of the neighboring Arab nations intended to attack the new state of Israel with increased power. The fledgling Israeli defense forces had close to nothing in terms of weaponry. But Ben-Gurion felt that such historical opportunities do not come along every day and must be recognized and seized. No one was going to invite the Jews to declare nationhood. No, that sharp understanding of reality was Ben-Gurion's alone. With the support of Golda Meir, Neil explains this extraordinary time, followed by Dove. Neil, you could sort of set the historical context. There was a lot going on at this time. And if you would just briefly explain the context in terms of Resolution 181, the Zionist Congress that was meeting in Israel in this period, and the threat of invasion. You know, so these are like yeah, the yeah, sideshow, the minor details, right? While they're yeah. trying to kind of figure out this.
2: No, that's that that's that's absolutely right and it's certainly not the case that the founders of Israel were taking it easy having a cocktail had all the leisure in the world to debate you know ideas and you know, the, the kind of things they wanted to institute. No the pressures were absolutely immense. As you mentioned it was decided famously resolution 181 November 29 1947 that the land of Palestine which had been controlled by the British since 17 would be partitioned into a Jewish state, an Arab state, and an international Jerusalem. That was a you know, process that was supposed to unfold over the course of 1948. Both the United States and the Soviet Union voted in favor of this, You know, led to wide celebrations in, in the Jewish world, of course. But politically, at least from the perspective of Palestine, it was a dead letter. The war launched against the Yishuv, the Jewish community in Palestine, commenced right afterwards on November 30th and basically continued and you know, scaled up you could say throughout the early months of 1948, Yeshuv had scored some important victories that April when Ben Gurion himself decided to go and change the military strategy to go on the offensive and to not simply rest content with holding on for dear life to the settlements. And that the war through 1948 had been with you know local, local, local Arab militias supported by infiltrators from abroad. But holding on against them was one thing. They they knew that as soon as the British were to leave on, on May, you know, slated for May 15th, that a large-scale invasion of the Arab states was to occur, and this was you know, considered rightly an existential threat. Yigal Yadin, chief of staff of the military-to-be, in the, in the week leading up to independence, told his colleagues candidly, our chances of, of surviving this are 50-50. Oh my goodness. So how, how many times threat, have we
0: heard that? Right. It, and I, yeah, I, I, yeah. Not to sound blasé. Yeah, yeah. But one of the comments that you made is that Ben-Gurion broke all the rules. I mean, you know, he was a bit of a bull in a china shop. Those aren't your words. That's mine. That's my phrase. But, you know, everyone was kind of fussing and schwitzing and fretting about how far do we go? And do we want to really, you know, go and kind of push the boundaries of 181? Do we want to get really aggressive in the face of, the UN and the international community. And Ben-Gurion said, no, we're just, we're busting through this. We're going to break the rules. We're going to preempt and surprise. And however you want to put it, we're going to do what's counterintuitive. We have an opportunity for the first time in 1800 years to declare Jewish nationhood and statehood. And that's what we're going to do. That was his absolute, really crowning achievement and i think we probably have lost sight of just how crazily bold that was right
1: the the novelist shyagnan has this extraordinary quote that we include in the book
0: great quote where
1: he he just candidly says that while so many of us were hoping for some kind of independence for independence in 1948 i really wonder if there were many among us surely not not me, who would have had the willingness to to, to undertake the responsibility of actually declaring independence. Now, it's not to say that there wasn't broad consensus for independence, both in the Yeshuv in general and among Ben-Gurion's council of 13 people who were in charge of the executive decision-making process of the Yeshuv at the time. But one of the extraordinary things that one sees when one goes through all the minutes of of the meetings of, of Min Haled Ha'am, which is what these 13, this group of 13 was called, is that where there's great trepidation regarding departing from the procedures that had been set for the creation of a Jewish and an Arab state in, in Palestine with, with economic union and an independent Jerusalem, as Resolution 181 had called for. Ben-Gurion was the one person who was willing to sort of lead a camp arguing that it was time to take a leap into, into the unknown, depart from the process, so to speak. He was backed by Golda Meir, by some others on the council. But Ben-Gurion and, and Meir, I guess, were the, were the rhetorical leaders of this, and, and was bold. It wasn't something that everyone was willing to do, and surely not to say, state it as forthrightly and as boldly as ultimately the Declaration of Independence, in fact, did.
0: Ben-Gurion was brilliant at staying focused on the core mission, Founding a state, the revisionists, the right-wing camp, were fixated on declaring clear borders. Some of them demanding that the new state extend far into Jordan. Such ideas would have been indefensible in Ben Gurion's view, in any scenario, never mind just militarily. His view was that we just need a state. He saw fixed borders as being of far less importance. It's interesting. David Grun, as he was named at birth, became David Ben-Gurion, the boy from Plonsk, Poland, who grew up in the late 19th and early 20th century, where borders in Europe were constantly shifting, a reality that continues to the present day. Ben-Gurion wasn't terribly concerned with fixed borders. He also drew heavily on the American experience, among others. Neil Rogachevsky addresses this issue.
2: Well, on both of those topics, the borders is so interesting. It's one of the places where Ben-Gurion learned from the example of the United States. In dialogue with his council meetings in the days leading up to independence, there was tremendous debate on the issues of borders. Should we mention them? Should we not? And he pointed to the American Declaration of Independence. This, this great document, he says, it doesn't mention borders because, as he says, borders are changing all the time. Recognize as you said, you know, this, you know, being you know from plants, you know, could surely what, one one could gain that insight from experience. But he had it from experience as as well as theory. Also, the nature of states uh, is for borders to change, and that didn't mean he was going to be implacable on the uh, you know on, on on the question of borders. In fact, he had supported Weitzmann's you know and the, and the general you know the labor labor Zionist position, which we accept. Resolution one eighty one, we're we're willing to have a, a, you know, a state the size of a tablecloth. If that's, if, if that's what it's going to be. But he knew he, he, he had this fundamental insight into the nature of statecraft, into the nature of the world, you could say, that such you know, territories are, 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 are changing.
0: Also on Ben-Gurion's mind was the influence of the progressive camp in the world at that time, which was considered, depending on with whom one spoke, to be either the Western states or the emerging communist world, which was still seen by many to promise utopia on Earth. Ben-Gurion surely did not share this view, but he could not afford to alienate the emerging Soviet bloc on the cusp of what turned out to be the almost 50-year Cold War that dominated global geopolitics. Ben-Gurion understood the precariousness, some may even say recklessness, of this national venture to which he was so committed, and that in order to succeed, he needed weapons. And those weapons and arms were coming from Czechoslovakia. And so Ben-Gurion cultivated a relationship with the brutal dictator, Joseph
2: Stalin. On the other matter, I mean, I think this is, again, I don't want to make it, you know, the whole, you know, whole show about Ben-Gurion's brilliance, but he saw this as well. He saw, of course, he was going to, over the next weeks and months, he was going to brilliantly exploit this relationship with Stalin. Basically, you know, the weapon weapon supply for the War of Independence came from Czechoslovakia, principally, i.e. from Stalin. But he saw ahead, unlike many of his left-leaning colleagues, that we this is a this is a very unstable situation. We're going to we're not we're not going to align ourselves with either side in this turning cold war. But it's at the height of foolhardiness to think that you know the Soviet bloc is going are going to be our you know, long-term allies and they're going to support us.
0: Dove takes a step back in this discussion, kind of zooming out to comment again on how public opinion has always had a bit of a chokehold on the state of
1: Israel. And it's amazing as well just how alive today's issues are back then and how the issues of back then are still alive today. One imagines if you had 13 leaders of of a nascent Jewish state today, they would be as concerned about global public opinion the opinion of the enlightened nations of the world. So it's amazing how th- these same issues just pop up and pop up, not just today, but but even in these extraordinary historical texts.
0: One thing I didn't quite understand that you you said in the book was that once the state was established, that the Haredi community pretty much accepted the reality of Zionism. That's a, for me that's a very problematic statement. Can you explain how you feel that's justified?
1: Happy to. I mean, really what is what one of the amazing things that comes up in in researching and learning about the the genesis of, of the state of Israel is that it's the genesis of of a state. And and the state has all the organs that states have. There there's history yet to be written about the the way in which the government was created, the way in which the courts were created the way in which the army was created has been pretty thoroughly researched and so and so you can see this extraordinary development of of a country and political decisions to make to make a country that people of different stripes can live in and and i think that 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 israel is, is very much that too and in the founding debates it's easy to get carried away with ideology and and the belief that the State needs to be all things at once for all people or the perfect instantiation of some Jewish vision when in fact, the Declaration of Independence is just very careful to make sure that ideological ideas in it are, are about principles and and the Declaration of Independence is when it discusses a Jewish state discusses Jewish principles, and when it discusses the state, it discusses a state that has a an equal protection for its citizens. And and I think the argument that we are making when we're talking about Jewish principles and and the Haredi community over time making its peace with that is really the world of, of, of religion making its peace with with politics, the world of religion making its peace with the idea that a Jewish state would come to be not on the basis of religion, but as a state. And citizens would be citizens of that state. And the state might be a Jewish state, but it wouldn't be per se, a religious or theocratic state. And, and that's, in fact, what, what really happened. And the way in which we argue that the Haredi and more really the, the world of classical Jewish learning made its peace with, with the state was in its actual identification of, of the extraordinary development that is the creation of a place where Jews of all sorts of different walks of life, including those whose lives are committed to, to Jewish learning, have a place, as, as indeed is the case today.
0: I feel that Dove and Neil sidestepped the issue of the Haredim in Israel, past and present. I've already put in a plug for them to do their next book on this subject. Their view on this issue is captured here. Neil and Dove say that Ben Gurion would have considered the Haredi issue to be a part of the ongoing culture wars in Israel, something that simply would not have risen to the level of seriousness meriting his attention. It was not they explain, an existential issue in Ben-Gurion's view. What I would like you to comment on, though, Neil, why not? There was what, you know, some people, myself included, referred to as the Faustian bargain made between Ben-Gurion and the Haredim around the time of the Declaration of Independence. In fact, just before, where he was very concerned that, you know, if they were to speak out against the creation of secular state, you know, kind of in accord with international norms that the Haredi community might have things to say that were not terribly supportive of that venture and he needed to have them quiet and on side and that that was when and why he agreed to finance yeshiva studies full-time for the few hundred men who wanted to do it at that time. And that, of course, has become a significant issue for modern Israel. Eighty years later, seventy-five years later, but you guys kind of brush over the whole Haredi thing. You say, "Hey, it was cool. They bought in. They accepted the Zionist enterprise, and everything was fine." Neil, no, it's
2: it's 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 a great it's a great point. And actually, we don't actually. I mean, we 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 talk a, you know, a little bit about this as you mentioned, but we sort of abstract from it because I see that issue as sort of the. You know, related to the unfolding social history of early Israel, and sort of not—I mean, it wasn't—you know, it wasn't an issue of, of high politics or political theory at the at the moment of founding. How different social groups would react? And of course, there's a question also—you of, you know the future Arab citizens of the state, right? Other other minorities. What I'd say generally, what I've learned about Ben Gurion in general from looking, you know, watching him, reading reading his speeches, in, in general, I, that was—you know. He was, in a way, you know, the, the master of compromise in a way that you can know, you can you think of perhaps a few future prime ministers who were equal at this, but he was just you know amongst his peers at the time unrivaled in finding ways to keep this unwieldy, messy, extraordinarily diverse you know, show on the road. Uh, I think you guys that, referred and, and to what one... he saw as a pivotal moment, and he was. Pardon me. Yeah, I was
0: going to say you guys at one point in the book you refer to Ben Gurion as having you know, quite astonishing bureaucratic tact. I believe those are the words you use. And tact is not anything that I would associate with Ben-Gurion. Neither is bureaucracy. But yeah, I think that that's a little glossed over, frankly. State of Tel Aviv is supported by listeners and readers like you. We are an independent media organization. And in order for us to create this content, we need your support please visit our website at stateoftelaviv.com. That's stateoftelaviv.com and consider becoming a paid subscriber. You will also find some fabulous print articles providing superb background analysis and opinion on what's going down. Each supporter makes a huge difference. Thanks for being here. And now, back to the episode. Ben-Gurion negotiated a Band-Aid solution to the Haredi issue, he had a state to declare and an army to create and a war to win. He was Sisyphus of Greek mythology, rolling that boulder up the mountain, doing the heavy lifting in every sense of the word. Culture wars, as Neil and Dove distilled things, were, in Ben-Gurion's view, better left to others to sort out so that he could focus on what actually mattered. Not until the wee hours of the morning on May 14, 1948, did Ben-Gurion find a few hours to focus on the final wording of the Declaration of Independence. There are so many stories of whose nose was out of joint, whose principles were dropped, who felt slighted. Four attempts at drafting the Declaration of Independence preceded Ben-Gurion's picking up of the pen, but none satisfied the old man, as they called him affectionately. In his view, They were all distracted by somewhat trivial matters. Not him. Once he had wrangled the communists and the socialists and the revisionists and the ultra-Orthodox and everything in between to agree, in principle, to support the founding of the Jewish state on the issues of statehood, liberal democratic principles, and a Jewish character and identity, Ben-Gurion felt he had accomplished the most critical of tasks.
2: And just as you mentioned, a state, and that was a fundamental one. This has to be a state, a state with no qualifications, one that doesn't, that can make, make peace, that can you know, make, 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 make an agreement if, if it so chooses to do so, it can make war if it realizes it, is, it has to, but it decides this for itself. It's not subject to the UN. It's not subject to any foreign power. It is a sovereign state with its own government existing in this world of states, accepting the cruel you know, ethical compromises, but also pos- ethical possibilities. Of living in a sovereign world. That's point one. Point two is it's going to be a Jewish state, and somehow the ethics of the Jewish world, which the Declaration frames in universal universal terms, will you know be be, be, be found within the state, and the state's you know purpose is somehow defined as advancing you know allowing protecting the Jews so that they can continue um, their ethical mission, which is derived from the Book of Books, the Bible. As Ben Gurion says in this first paragraph, which he writes himself, and the third is a state of rights. It's going to be a say, state where it's a say, uh, rights for all citizens, regardless of religion, regardless of sex. You know, freedom of conscience is protected. You know, pray, you know holy access to the holy places. All the things that we think of as you know befitting a liberal state. So you know, a, a free state, a Jewish state, and a strong state devoted to protecting both its Jewish and free characters. And that's I think sort of what Ben Gurion tries to do in the few hours that remained to him over that last night. You know, the other drafts here circle around those 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 topics, and Ben-Gurion really states them in a you know decisive way. The
0: fact that the word democracy is not mentioned in the Declaration of Independence is considered by some historians and political scientists to be significant, an assertion that Dove explains.
1: So a lot is made of this by many. We think that it's a deep misunderstanding of democracy to... To make a lot of the absence of the word democracy first of all, what is democracy? There's procedural democracy and substantive democracy, procedural democracy, voting, substantive democracy, equal protection of rights, protection of minorities, the notion of, of fairness before a single just law. the things that that one thinks about when one discusses substantive democracy and when we use the word democracy, that's mostly what we mean. It's not majority rule it's it's voting and, and substantive rights. Majority rule in the crudest sense is just a misunderstanding of, of the word democracy. And so the word democracy had been, had been deleted from an earlier text. Critics might make a lot of it, but how can one be critical from the perspective of democracy of a text that lists equal protection of, of so many of these rights and, and says that will not discriminate on the basis of, of, of sex, will not discriminate on the basis of religion,
0: the coalition government today promotes precisely the notion of democracy that Dove and Neal reject as reflecting a very serious misunderstanding of what constitutes a democratic system. It leaves what may be the most contentious issue today. What is a Jewish state? What is meant by that? Neil sets out what Ben-Gurion intended by making the Jewish identity and character of the state one of the core founding principles of Israel.
2: So Ben-Gurion takes a strong stand against any idea of theocracy, not that anyone, even the religious you know, you know, people of, of the council were advocating for that, but that, you know, that beautiful example you give of you know, a state that you know, all, all kinds of people with very diverse you know, opinions on religious and political matters, the state won't be constrained by Jewish law. So Judaism, the world of Judaism will influence the state without constraining the state's behavior on a daily basis to say nothing of, you know, any assertion of Jewish supremacism, even if that's, you know, if that's, if that's a coherent concept, which I don't don't really think it is. So not, not theocratic, but the world, Jewish, Jewish, Jewish ethics, and especially insofar as those ethics match a liberal state and reinforce this notion of rights. And there's this effort in the whole declaration to have rights, you know, the the liberal tradition reinforce Judaism in a certain way and Jewish ideas to reinforce a state will be uh, a, a state of rights. We're, li- we're liberal. We respect the rights of conscience. We respect the religious freedom of all, not the you know, opposition to our Judaism, but because we are Jewish. That I think com- comes across in the declaration. So it's really a beauty. I mean, one can criticize the formulation, but Gorian writes about the you know, cultural treasures beque- bequeathed by the Jews to, 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 to humankind. He doesn't say what those treasures are. So there's some you know, clear ambiguity there, but I think it's kind of a you know, beautiful effort during the constraints. He was under at the time and which i might add which we're, which we're still very much exposed to
0: i can't call ben Gorion and ask him Please. so you're the next best thing if he were here today watching what's going on and a huge part of it is how we interpret and apply judaism or the concept of jewish state how we marry or don't marry you know religion and state what do you think ben Gorion would have to say to us today in
1: his tactful well, ben, way, yes. Well, so, so this is this is so we say something in the book. I love that you seized on our description of his bureaucratic tact, not terms you normally uh, ascribe to Ben Gurion. Until you start to read him functioning in political meetings and dealing with political rivals and political actors, he was the master of, as Neil put it, constructive ambiguity, kicking cans down the road, finding the things that people could agree about and just eliding and pushing off to the side the things that he knew were going to be politically toxic because he believed that a lot of these cultural issues were marginal relative to his much more important objectives of creating a state, building an army, these sort of things. And that was his constant tack on all of these issues even at the time of independence. So late at night, we didn't go through the, the arch-famous story of the Declaration of Independence. The night before independence, Ben-Gurion is confronted by the communist and the rabbi, each wanting to take out the term Sur Israel" from the text. And Ben-Gurion, as he hagiographically described it in later texts he wrote, long after the deaths of both parties to this alleged debate, claims that he talked them into compromise. And indeed, there, there are points in the minutes of the of Minhalda Am where he does do that. And why was he doing that? He thought he couldn't believe they were spending so much time debating this cultural issue when there were arch political issues like founding the state, creating the state and setting up some sort of, of overarching ethical framework for the state in this declaration while also dealing with the diplomatic and military issues he had to face. So I think that if he looked at us right now, he'd think, why are you having a culture war? There is other stuff to be done. And he'd find some smart way to... To to get past the culture war and and move on to to much more grave issues that almost border on war because they're serious. I think it's always dangerous to to try to to put words into the mouths of of past figures, but there's a great story that I think can can help with, uh, uh-huh. with trying to address your question. Um, and and so that's the the story of of the Declaration of Independence on its on its last night. Okay, uh, Ben Gurion uh, is he has his own ideas about what matters the most in this declaration. He's focused. He writes a few paragraphs that no one else even mm. had, had conjured in the debates that they had um, in, in and the most important one is the one in which he proclaims the uh, natural right of the Jewish uh, people to be masters of their own fate in their own sovereign state as the grounding of, of declaring independence to him that's the priority that's where his eyes are focused on on the prize no one else set, raises this issue the language entirely his own the debates are about totally separate issues the debates are largely about the issue of borders whether or not the word sovereignty should be in the middle of the declaration of independence or in another sentence or in some other paragraph no one else is interested they're arguing bitterly uh, and he finds some way to to take them from arguing about those other issues and get them ultimately to sign onto a text that's about these much more important issues. Uh, he's able to take higher principles than 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 everyone else is arguing, squabbling on the basis of, and, and use them to unify unify the country. And I think that that's a really timeless lesson about the importance principles, the importance of. Of individuals who are able to see further and, and and think higher. And I think it's a beautiful, beautiful thing um, that is part of the heritage of Israel and, and the Jewish people for that matter now, um, and one that I hope can can continue to inspire people um, amidst the tumult and difficulties of today.
0: Well, I think that's a very beautiful um, way to end. Professor Neil Rogachevsky, Dov Ziegler, thank you so much for Speaking to us this evening, to State of Tel Aviv, I know that our listeners will really appreciate the tremendous insight that you bring to this really important issue. I do.
1: Greatly appreciate it. It was a Thank fantastic you so conversation. Wonderful. Thank you.
0: And we're going to have more. What you are about to hear is taken from the original recording of David Ben-Gurion reading the final sentences of the Declaration of Independence of the State of Israel which seems to be a fitting end to this podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the State of Tel Aviv and Beyond podcast. It would be great if you would like and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Check us out at stateoftelaviv.com on Substack, where you will have access to our full library of content for a limited time only. We are truly independent. We don't just say it, meaning that you will be exposed to views from across the political spectrum at stateoftelaviv.com. Me? I'm all over the place, but generally a solid centrist. State of Tel Aviv is supported by its listeners and readers. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber. Each member makes a huge difference. I'm Vivian Berkovich, signing off from deep inside the state of Tel Aviv. Until next time, stay cool, stay safe, have a great weekend.